Hello, everybody, and welcome to What Am I Missing, the podcast where I attempt to fill in the gaps of my knowledge through conversations with friends. I'm your host, Brett Walden, and today I'm talking to Matt Midget about the Beach Boys. Uh, this is a very interesting and unique episode for a few reasons. First of all, it's my first part one of two Uh, that I've ever done, which means that if you come back next week, you're going to hear the second half of this conversation, because the Beach Boys, um, they they span the decades, so there was a lot to say, and I felt like uh, it was impossible to edit it down to one single episode. So this is part one, and next week, come back and listen to part two of the continuing conversation about the Beach Boys. Now, as you listen to this, you're going to notice a few things in the background. Don't know why it all happened at once, but I can pretty firmly um, suggest that it's because there was no rain on this day, and so uh, my lawn service decided to show up just as we were interviewing, and so for a little bit near the beginning, you're going to hear a lawnmower in the background, and if you're listening to this on speakers or or a headset, you may think that maybe there's a lawnmower happening behind you. Um, It's a very soothing sound, but just know that it's going to be there for a while. And at one point, the right speaker is going to drop out for a couple of seconds. It's not you. I don't know what happened, but I can't fix it, and there it is. So if you can get past all of those things, there's a very interesting conversation about the Beach Boys hiding in there. Hopefully you learned something. I know I sure did. And with that said, there is enough preamble going on. Let's answer the question, do you love me? Do you love me? Surfer Girl with Matt Midget. Take it away, Anthony. I have almost the entire catalog, except there's one song mm-hmm. uh, that I really think is just so good that I own. I don't actually own it oh. in this version. So I think you said you had Spotify. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the that one is the uh, vocals only demo of Heroes and Villains Ooh. on a, a new record they just put out. It's called it's just, I think 1967. Mm-hmm. Um, sun, sunshine happiness something cool you said it's so good you don't have it i don't own it because okay well the other thing is <laughs> in addition to being a beach boys fan mm-hmm. i'm a, um uh audiophile so i go out of my way to find the very best quality version of uh, the music that's out there oh, okay so um maybe about you know when she had cds and then like cds were um uh, compressed form of music, right? Where you had vinyl, and then your CDs were compressed, and then everybody started doing MP3s, and MP3s are horrifically compressed. Mm-hmm. Um, after a few years after CDs, they started doing a thing called Super Audio CD, which was an expanded where CDs are forty four point one kilohertz with a sixteen bit uh, signal. Yeah. So it means it's sampled for it's sampled forty four thousand one hundred times per second, and it is a sixteen bit uh, wavelength. Mm. Um, shortly after that, they started doing super audio CDs, which are um, it's just a single variant wave. Like I don't know the technical details about it, but it's just it's more like uh, the vinyl quality on a CD. It's not compressed at all. Right. And then they did one where it's um, the FLAC files are. Uh, up to 192.24, which means they're 24-bit files as opposed to 16, and sampled 192,000 times per second instead of 44,100 times per second. Okay. So they're massive files that really, um, it sounds a lot better right. than anything you're going to find on uh, streaming or even a CD. Yeah. Um, and this release hasn't come out yet. 
I see. In that format. So you so. don't have it. Correct. Does that affect the, 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 the storage capabilities of like the CD? I mean, in terms of, or, or whatever format it's on, like yeah. Well, they're huge files. It's it's a basically about a gig an album. Right. So mm-hmm. what are that? What does something like that come on? Is that just is that downloadable? Yeah. Uh, there's okay. a couple different sites. Uh, HD Tracks mm-hmm. is the first one. Um, they were they were really huge for a while. The Neil Young had a a player. It was a Pono music player. It was mm-hmm. like a little triangle, uh, sort of like a long triangle, looked like a Toblerone bar. Totally, I was gonna say. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, he had that. That was one of the major criticisms. Um, of it. Was and that it looked like a candy bar? Yeah, it looked like a candy bar, but it wouldn't fit in your pocket like an iPod. because it Right, was... I'm sure in your pocket it looked pretty awkward. Well, in my pocket it looked impressive, <laughs> because I wear my pants low, <laughs> Right. so they just, you know... He was... loves his music, yeah. boy oh boy. Yeah, um, it's a... <laughs> like a, yeah, it's Spinal Tap, you know, where he's got the... Uh, yeah, he's got the, the cucumber, cucumber in the foil. Yep. That was you. Yeah, that was me. Actually, um, I when I was in one of the bands that I was in, um, cause he makes a joke where like, we have armadillos in our trousers. Mm-hmm. So I had this little stuffed armadillo that I would leave, uh, when I did Hedwig and the, Hedwig and the Angry Inch, I would leave the stuffed armadillo on top of my amp. Okay. And then at the end of the night, he would like take it and just put my pants and walk out. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> did anybody get the reference? Um, a, f- a few people did. Most of the other guys in the band, mm-hmm. um, the, that show was so spectacular at the end of it. Nobody saw what like the rhythm guitar player just grabbing a little thing and putting his pants when he right. to walk out during right. the, uh, during the curtain call. That seems like one of those jokes that like every once in a while will happen at Sack that I'll do where it's just so under the radar like referential that there's like one person in the audience who'll go like oh mm. and they'll like nod <laughs> you, yeah. you know it's not a huge crowd pleaser it's just a okay that's not what you did there yeah. Those yeah. are my favorite kinds. Yeah, my mom was the uh, same way. She was at work. People didn't realize she was funny until about a day later. Right. Like people will come up, you, that thing you said yesterday, that was that was really funny. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yep. Wait till you get the jokes that I said today. <laughs> they were even better. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, uh, I mean, we're already starting. So uh, let's just say hi to everybody. Okay. Hello, everybody. Hello, as, everyone. As you can hear, this is Matt. Um, if you uh, downloaded the episode without looking at the title, then then th- that's your first introduction to him. But uh, we are here today to talk about um, the Beach Boys, which is very cool. Um, something that I know quite a bit about. Uh, so quite frankly, I don't even know why Matt's here. But um, okay. Well, I mean, I don't know why I'm here either. So he kind of just wandered in, started talking about CDs and sound compression quality so um you know we'll we'll get started on whatever um but uh I'm, i am i'm very excited to have you here um and uh to hear what you have to say uh cool thank you i'm, I'm very excited to be here well you're welcome um so the beach boys obviously are a band everybody knows that um i'm not saying anything that you don't already know um and uh the interesting thing about the beach boys and correct me if i'm wrong Okay, but I'm probably not. I don't. I don't. I don't plan on doing that too much. Is that they go through three distinct phases in their careers? Um, they basically the first phase is kind of I would say probably their most famous phase. That's their Jan and Dean phase. That's when they're really doing a lot of surf, a lot of surf music, you know, ripping off a lot of the sounds of the day, and uh, making a lot of money doing it. Okay. Okay. Second phase. Brian Wilson goes crazy phase, uh, playing in a sandbox, all the things that the bare naked ladies sing about. Third phase, 
John Stamos phase. They're playing Kokomo on Full House and uh, making even more money doing that. And um, that's basically it. They could have gone the Starship route and updated their names through the decade. They could have become the Beach Men at some point, but they didn't. They chose to stay boys. They never wanted to grow up. And um, Brian Wilson, not not as crazy anymore. Finally releasing some lost albums within the last couple of years. And uh, they're fading into obscurity. How did I do? Uh, actually, you did uh, fairly fairly close. I want yeah. to tackle, tackle the second to last first. Uh, they actually did consider changing their names for uh, quite a long time. Oh, did they really? Yes. Uh, in the 70s, when they realized they were no longer boys mm-hmm. uh, and that they were now... Uh, adults yeah that they were going to drop boys they were just going to be beach no yeah that's not a yeah it's thing. it was a horrible idea <laughs> uh, but yes that was literally um who conceived that idea uh somebody in the band probably the manager right um they were in like 1967 they set up their own record company called brother records because mm-hmm. three of them were brothers yeah uh and then a cousin and a friend and um they were their live attendance and everything just dropped dramatically because nobody wanted to hear them anymore. Sure. They had one, it was one reported gig, like New York City, the Beach Boys drew less than 100 people. No. Yeah. Really? Yes. That was that, that, was that low. Speaking of Spinal Tap. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. They were, um, they couldn't draw anybody. And so one of the things that they, ideas they were kicking around was to change the name and they figured they would just drop boys because then it wouldn't they wouldn't sound young anymore and also their music had changed by that point um, yeah in the the late 60s early 70s they really did go from that early uh, i'm not gonna say jan and dean but i'm gonna say uh surf <laughs> and uh car songs yeah um they uh they stopped doing those and they were actually had a whole bunch of albums um uh, sunflower surfs up that were um in holland that were uh, environmentally based Oh, um, there's one section uh, called the California Saga in their album Holland, mm-hmm. where it's one song is just a sort of spoken word poem about an eagle flying over the mountain, and there's another kind of the odd part at the beginning and before it goes into a song called California, that is uh, a very typical Beach Boy song, uh, but still environmentally based. And there's they make uh, a really a really horrible John Steinbeck reference in the middle of the song. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that I can, I, I can't imagine why less than a hundred people would want to see them. Hmm, yeah. Well, um, yeah. So that's, that's kind of the, the point at which they had um, not really fallen to, but just like their popularity in, in their popular culture had just dropped so far. Right. That they were considering changing their names. And they thought the problem was the boys part. Yeah. They thought that they were, they were still, there was a lot of, kind of uncertainty, um, because at that point, Brian Wilson, who had been the creative force behind the band, had sort of stepped away and wasn't active anymore. So they were all trying to find their feet. Um, It's this weird kind of thing where, you know, you've done, you've you've been at one of the biggest bands in the world for six, seven, eight years. And then the guy who is like leading the way just says, nope, I'm out, done. Yeah. You guys figure it out. And all of a sudden, you know, you have to keep this juggernaut going and none of the people that were there had the experience, had one really the experience mm-hmm. that everybody else had, but two. Brian Wilson is a, is a singular musical genius, right? Like he's on the level of, of Mozart and Beethoven, uh, Gershwin, and um, uh, the the Rhapsody in Blue, 
Rhapsody in Blue. Is that Gershwin? Gershwin. Gershwin. That's, yeah. Yeah. See, that's I knew it. Um, except I didn't know it, which is why I paused. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's but that is hard because he definitely was the creative juggernaut behind a lot of that. I mean, he was that band essentially. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, well, he was that band in the studio. Right. Um, but, like, kind of going back to the beginning, because when the band started, it was Brian, Mike, and Dennis, who were three brothers. The Wilson brothers. The Wilson brothers. Uh, Mike Love, who was a cousin, mm-hmm. and uh, Al Jardine, who was a uh, family friend. He was actually um, on the football team with Brian Wilson and, and broke his leg uh, tackling Brian of some sort. Oh, really? Yeah. It was just, he was like running back and a quarterback and they like slammed into each other somehow and right. a leg got broken. So this is in the movie. This is one, this is the first scene. This is the meet cute kind of. Yeah. Uh, that's, it's the first scene after you do the, you do the frame scene, which is at the very beginning, you've got like all, you know, six, seven people in a room, finally, finally meeting. And mm-hmm. then you have the flashback to that first important scene. Right. And that's the, that's the break in the leg. Right. That's yeah. in the movie version. That's how they, introduce themselves to each other yes if okay. they ever do a version of al jardine in the movie that's any good <laughs> right uh, they've done was it three or four televised like special there was the john stamos special there was mm. an american family there was the love and mercy film there was the dennis wilson movie and for some reason al jardine always gets completely ignored in all of them really yeah why why is that you just got a bad personality uh no actually um i've met him personally oh cool and he is a really cool guy hmm yeah um he was, uh, my wife and I uh, went out to uh, Vegas, and he was playing like a two-week stint at the Riviera, which doesn't exist anymore, mm. um, and he was, it was like, they were playing, we saw them like three, four nights in a row for his solo record, and uh, on the last night, like, we went down to the, the little Irish pub in yeah. the Riviera, and he showed up, and all of a sudden, we're all, she's showing him uh, photographs from the show that she has... It was like right after the iPad came out, so mm-hmm. she was able to just do that, and they were all amazed with it. And then <laughs> uh, at one point, he was just like buying tequila shots, and just everybody threw him back. And I was like, wow, I just did a tequila shot at the same table with a Al Jardine. This That's is great. really cool. Yeah. yeah. That is cool. Yeah, then I met him in an elevator, and he talked to him for a couple moments. And he was did like, he remember you? Uh, he did. He was asked, uh, so uh, how did you guys meet? I was like, well, actually, I was in a, I was in a Beach Boys cover band. Right. Like, oh, really? Well, what, what part did you play? Well, actually, I sort of played you and Carl and Brian. I just, I sang all the high parts and, uh, and I played rhythm guitar. He's like, oh, well, then you, you played Brian then. <laughs> and then he just got on the elevator and it shut. Oh. Yeah. Flat, all the movies just flashed through his brain at that one moment. Yeah. And he was like, like, nobody ever represents me. Yeah. No. Wow. Um, so I do want to go back to the origins of the band, but, but, but you, so you just mentioned you were in, a cover band of the Beach Boys. Is that how you kind of got into them yourself? Or uh, actually, no. Um, I will go. Let me go all the way back. My very first experience with the Beach Boys, and one of the reasons probably why they affect me so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was four years old, so it's nineteen seventy nine, Virginia Beach. Um, my parents uh, split, mm. and so my my dad left. I uh, went like moved into his own place, and so there was that kind of thing going on. Uh, but one of the only memories I have of my parents when they are together. I am sitting um, downstairs on the carpet with a pair of headphones on, uh, plugged into a reel-to-reel tape deck. So one of the two big reel reel tape decks. Yeah. And I'm listening to uh, a song by the Beach Boys called Susie Cincinnati. And mm-hmm. I'm listening to the song over and over because that is how, as a like probably two and a half, three-year-old, the only way I could fall asleep. 
was that particular song? Was that particular song. Okay. It's on an album called 15 Big Ones. Uh, that song has a peculiar history in that it was released on that album in 1976, but that album had actually been released three times as the B-side of a single and never took off. Okay. And was, this is also weird, the first and only Beach Boys single that was written and produced by Al Jardine. <laughs> so that's just, and he does not play that live. Right. Uh, because if you listen to it, um, it's got this really cool, um, kind of, it's a kind of cool guitar line at the beginning. It's, it has, it's, it has a drum solo in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, and like musically, there's this really cool part where it's, um, the, the melody line is, is, is descending, it's going down mm-hmm. and then it has a key change, but instead of modulating down, it modulates up, but because it's moving down, it sounds like it modulates down. Oh, interesting. Yeah. It's a re- it's a really strange, like the, it's in, I think it's in F, but then it mod or it's, it's in E, but it modulates to F, but it modulates to F as part of a descending run of the melody, which is really strange. Yeah. Um, so that, did you get all of that at three years old? Yes. You yeah, did. All you, of that. You understood all yes. of that. I, uh, I was able to pick apart all the different, uh, <laughs> aspects of that song. Um, no, I had no idea. Um, it wasn't until years and years later that I actually, uh, when I was sat down listening to it and trying to learn it, um, just for my own kind of, uh, self-fulfillment right. that I discovered it was doing that. And then it was just like, oh, that just blew my mind. Yeah. Um, that even... Like on a throwaway song by somebody considered like you know like one of the the lesser members of the group, sure that that would be on there, like that level of musical sophistication on a throwaway pop song right I was going to say it sounds i mean I'm very layman as far as this goes, but that sounds more complicated than your average pop song has any right to be yes, yeah yeah um it I guess it was one of those things that you know like when people do something for so long they it it, they make it look easy no matter what. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the things, those things where they pull off this, what seems to me to be an incredibly sophisticated maneuver yeah. in a pop song that has no reason to be there. Right. Yeah. Especially on a song that, that, that it doesn't seem, I mean, there's, there's always the hope that people will listen to it, but it just doesn't seem, it, it just seems like a level of sophistication for something that that is ultimately going to be buried in the middle of an album yeah. or you know that's yeah on the yeah the B side the of B a forty five exactly um, yeah so that was that was just a kind of an odd thing to realize mm-hmm. um, so anyway yeah so there I was and then uh, my parents split and my dad is the one who had all the records so he took it with him mm. um, and so I couldn't I couldn't find it. And for years, I would go to every record shop looking for that Beach Boys song. Because the Beach Boys are one of those bands, like, they have tons of compilations. Like, every year, there's a new compilation of right. songs about this, songs about that. And it was never there. Um, and then, finally, back maybe when, this, when CDs really came out, they did a reissue series where they reissued that album called 15 Big Ones. Mm-hmm. And there I am, I think, maybe 10 years old. And I, I go into uh, Trax Records, which was in uh, Norfolk, Virginia, which is spelled Norfolk, but if you're from there, it's pronounced Norfolk. Sure. I go in there and I find it. And so I'm 10 years old. This is in like 1985. And then right next to it, somehow out of alphabetical order, I think it was like Van Halen's 1984. <laughs> and I'm like, I've been searching for this for years. Yeah. 
but this just came out, and I put it down, and I grabbed... You uh, bought the Van Halen Yeah, I brought the Van Halen. Oh, I bought no. the Van Halen, thinking I would be able to go back, because, you know, the Beach Boys will always be there. You fickle child. And uh, it did not. It disappeared. And I did not I did not see it again until it came out on a CD in uh, 19, like, 91, 92. Wow. Something like that. That long. Yeah, I was at a store with a friend, and I was... Like, just kind of wandering in there. I had no money because I wasn't expecting to buy it. And I found it. And I just started drooling over it. <laughs> and then he was like, my, I was like are you going to get it? I was like, I don't have any money. Yeah. And my friend John was like, I got you. Aw. And he, he bought it. Sweet John. Yeah. Good. So you, yeah. so you got your hands on it. You listened to it again. Immediately fell asleep for the first time in 13 years. Yeah. I had not I had not gotten any sleep for oh, 13 years. Tragic. It was, it was horrible. That's tragic. Horrible time. Um, did that sort of, had you, had you sort of been following the Beach Boys through that time or was it just kind of a, did it, did it reignite something in you to be like, oh, I actually do like these guys? Yeah, it reignited it. Um, I was always kind of a, I was always a Beach Boys fan and they were kind of like in the, in the background of my life, mm-hmm. uh, especially at that period of time because you had, you know, 1991, you had Nirvana explodes and prior to that it was into Metallica and Black Sabbath. So I had kind of moved on from, um the Beach Boys, and then had moved into heavier bands, but I never quite forgot them. Like right. someone would, we'd be at a party and somebody would put on a Beach Boy record and it'd be like, oh yeah, and I would just start singing along uh, to the entire thing. Yeah. Um, but quietly, because, you know, the, when you're 15, 16 years old at a drama party, you don't want to do anything to draw attention to yourself. Of course not. Because, It's you know, not cool. No, Beach Boy's not cool. Beach Boy's never cool. Um, I, uh, that reminds me, I was, uh, in middle school and my dad, um, listened to his favorite band was the Eagles is the Eagles. He's still with us. Um, but, uh, so same thing. So I grew up loving the Eagles, but I also grew up thinking that everyone else just had the same experience as I did. And so I would often sing Eagle songs and be looked at with confusion and disdain. And, um, I remember just because it's not, it's just, at that time, especially, you know, around a certain age, if you're singing your parents' music, it's it's so uncool, you know? Yeah, yeah. Especially at that time. Maybe not now so much with, like, the internet and the accessibility of information and stuff where it's just, like, you know, and especially the, the, the ironic factor that comes along with sort of, like, isn't that crazy I like the Eagles or isn't that crazy I like this? But back then, I remember it was just, like... You know, yeah, you were supposed to like New Kids on the Block, and you were supposed to like Belle Biv DeVoe, and you were supposed to, you know, or whatever. <laughs> uh, see, I'm, I don't even know, because I wasn't into that stuff. Um, but I remember I remember one time, um, this kid was singing an Eagle song, um, and instead of saying, there's going to be a heartache tonight, he kept saying, there's going to be a party tonight, and I kept getting so mad that he wasn't getting the lyrics right. And in retrospect, there may have been a cover of that song with those lyrics, but at the time, I was furious with him. I, I, can, I, can, I can understand that, but I also think There's Gonna Be a Party Tonight would be a, a really good song. Yeah, and, and like, like I've never looked for it. Yeah. Listeners, if you're out there and, you, and there is a song that they just, you know, they change one lyric and they say party tonight, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but man, I was just, I kept going, it's heartache. It's, it's heartache. It's gonna be a party tonight. Yeah. A party. Oh, wow. And, and he kept saying it, and I just, <laughs> under my breath, I kept going, it's heartache. Oh, ah, uh, I, 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 similar to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1980 post Van Halen, yeah. David Lee Roth puts out his first uh, EP called Crazy from the Heat, mm-hmm. which includes 
California Girls, the cover of a Beach Boys song. Right, okay. Uh, the background vocals on that are actually almost all done by Carl Wilson of the Beach Boys. Nice. Uh, we had it was summer camp, and these kids put it on, and then I put on the Beach Boy one, and they were insistent that the Beach Boys were covering David Lee Roth. Sure. And, and I... Like blew my head. Like I, I <laughs> yeah. went. I got. I got a copy of the Endless Summer record, which is a big compilation. Yeah. It's like, 1974. David Lee Roth wasn't even a musician in 1974, and they would insist. Yeah. And it just. I'm easy to get riled up, and I'm especially, uh, especially growing up like that. I was mm-hmm. always uh, really short and really, uh, really jumpy. Yeah. So not much has changed. <laughs> um, but you could get me just wired yeah. on something like that. I, I bet they were insisting that David Lee Roth's version was was the superior one as well it does have a better video oh <laughs> well <laughs> you can't be david lee roth for videos no, that's that's it, always no, going to be ma- true mannequins in a golf cart <laughs> you know it's yeah um, so at what point in your at what point in your beach boys um journey do you start actively instead of just like listening to their music and appreciating it at what point do you start really diving into the history um i started doing that that happened uh roughly early uh, early 2000s, late 99 okay. was, was that point. Um, I kind of faded out of it. Uh, they were always sort of kind of in the background. Um, but I, uh, I was sitting at home and I saw uh, like a uh, advertisement, which is at a Brian Wilson at Baltimore's Pier 6 Pavilion. Mm-hmm. Like, huh, well, that's interesting. I wonder, I'll go out there. Maybe he'll play some stuff from Pet Sounds. Uh, because this was not pre-internet, but pre-I having internet, or I had internet. Sure. Us having internet. We, my roommate Steve and I had, did not have internet Got at it. this point. In Got time. it. And, you know, uh, cell phones with internet's not a thing. No. So I jump in the car and I drive from Washington, D.C., just outside of Washington, D.C., to Baltimore. It's the first time I've ever driven there by myself. Mm-hmm. I have no idea where Pier 6 is, uh, but I find it's in the Inner Harbor area. I pull in there, and the set opens with um, a couple, a song called Little Girl I Once Knew, which is um, another kind of weird experimental radio song in that there are gaps of silence in the song. Oh, wow. It just, all music stops, and you have silence for a couple seconds. Right. And then it starts back up again. So it wasn't a song I was really familiar with at the time, uh, because it was also, it wasn't an album track, it was a single only, mm-hmm. and it was hard to find that one on compilations. Um, they get through the... They play about 45 minutes to an hour, and Brian Wilson stands up and walks off stage. Oh. And I'm like, what the, what the hell? <laughs> um, and then people get up, and they all start moving around, and I'm like, what, what the hell's going on? That's a really short set. He didn't, he didn't play Good Vibrations. He didn't play Wouldn't It Be Nice. He didn't play God Only Knows. He didn't play Fun, Fun, Fun. Right. Um, and the guy next to me, this older, just kind of taps me on the shoulder. He's like, they're, they're just taking intermission. Oh, so this was a yeah. thing that yeah. Brian did. So they came back out, um, and then they played uh, the fir- like the second verse and the chorus of Bare Naked Ladies, Brian Wilson. Mm. And then they stopped that, they introduced the band, and they said, and now we will do the entire Pet Sounds album. Wow. So start to finish, completely unbeknownst to me, um, my, my head just explodes, and yeah. I'm just like, ugh. And what year was this? You said early 2000s? Uh, this would have been, I think... 99 or two, 99 or 2000. So he, so he was singing Brian Wilson by Bare Naked Ladies back then? Yes. Oh, wow. I had no yeah, idea. and it was as part of his concert. And they had this uh, really kind of mellow arrangement. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, but broken out into, I think, you know, five or six part harmony and people just kind of moving around and stuff. Yeah. 
Because I've heard him do that. Mm-hmm. Um, that song, actually, it's funny because that that song was my connection to finding the Bare Naked Ladies, um, who I've mentioned before on the show, who are one of one of my favorites um, until Stephen Page left. Um, that's a whole thing. But <laughs> but but that's that that was my bridge. Was I heard the song Brian Wilson got offended on his behalf. And was like, how dare these Canadians just sing about something that they don't understand? Um, because I was indignant and seventeen, and you know, thought I knew everything. Um, and but then sought sought the song out so that I could hear it and and be angry and righteous about it, and actually like fell in love with the album that it was on, yeah. and and continued listening from that point on. But um, but it wasn't until about maybe two thousand and thirteen that mm-hmm. I heard Brian Wilson actually doing a cover of it so yeah. it, it's it's actually i am i am learning now that he was doing that way earlier yeah um well he and uh he has a really odd sense of humor um so he would have heard that somebody would have brought it to him i'm yeah. assuming because somebody in his like management circle would have been brought it and like uh, hey brian you want to you want to hear this song you know i don't want to defend i don't want to offend you or anything but this group <laughs> does a song called brian wilson right oh, okay sure put it on <laughs> and uh so he you know, they fired it up, and I was like, oh, that's pretty good. Yeah, pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't do a very good Brian Wilson yeah. impression, because um, I've i been around him a couple times, and I've heard him talk, like, mm-hmm. off stage, and uh, he's, yeah, he sounds like you think that he does. Sure. Um, and, but he has this weird sense of humor, and so that's one of the reasons he would have done that. It's mm-hmm. also one of the reasons why, if you ever see, if you ever read interviews, he will. The people will always ask him, "Oh, what's your favorite record?" Uh, love you. Uh, okay. And then um, somebody else will ask him, "What's your favorite record?" Oh, Pet Sounds. Right. He changes them. <laughs> yeah. And I think he just changes them just to, just to kind of mess with interviewers who don't do their job. Right, right, right. Because he's never hidden like what he thought was his best work and that sort of stuff. It's just people keep asking the same questions, and in order for him not to get bored and just be like, eh, "Interview over." Right. He'll just kind of change. He'll just mess with people. Right. That's so interesting. Um, yeah, so he did that. Okay, so he did uh, did all of Pet Sounds, uh, blew my head off, um, and then you know ended with their kind of the Beach Boys uh, encore set, which is like Surfing USA and Barbara Ann and Help Me Rhonda and uh, Fun Fun Fun, and then they all disappear off the side of the stage. Yeah, um, and then a year later, um, he came back and he was actually opening for Paul Simon. And who was just in Orlando last, last night? night. Yeah, yeah, last night. Last night. Um, well, I did not go see that show. Um, but when I, uh, he, the next year when he came through and he was opening for Paul Simon, he was just doing like a short, like a 45 minute opening set. Mm-hmm. And, or maybe it was an hour. Um, one of the things, he, he came out and they played a bunch of songs and they played some more obscure stuff, which I thought, oh, well, that's interesting. I never thought I'd hear uh, Anna Lee the Healer um, <laughs> live, but okay. Great. Uh, and... Then at one point he stops and he just says, okay, here are some songs to make you smile. Um. And out of the back, from all the way back in the lawn, you hear one single voice. Yes! And that was me. Okay. <laughs> because nobody else got the reference because he, he was announcing that he was going to do some songs from the Smile record. Right. Which is this legendary, uh, at that time, lost record that was what Brian Wilson had been working on when he just kind of broke and said, forget it, I'm out. Yeah. And he did uh, Our Prayer, which is this beautiful opening kind of Gregorian chant hymn sort of thing. 
uh, into Heroes and Villains, mm-hmm. uh, which is an amazing track. And then they played, I think it was that one, and then Surf's Up, which is sort of like the, the centerpiece of that record, and then moved on. And once again, like I'm surrounded by all these people that are waiting to hear You Can Call Me Al and Sounds of Silence that <laughs> yeah. are just sort of like kind of getting through this Brian Wilson performance. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm standing and like just cheering. Right. And you're like, you don't know what you just heard. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, the rock and roll universe has waited 40 years for this record. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you're waiting for 50 ways to leave your lover. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Although at that show, Paul Simon did uh, call me out like huge, big production number and like tons of musicians and horns and everything going. And then on a dime cut into just him on an acoustic guitar doing sounds of silence by himself, which is one of those musical moments. And I'm just like, Oh, nice. You know, kind of goose, goosebumpy thing. Sure. Um, so then, at this point, um, I am doing a show, uh, Hedwig and the Angry Inch, in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm really, for the first time, like, I'm playing a guitar every night. I'm singing backup every night. And I'm like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start making more of an effort to do music. I'm going to do better music. And I start flipping through the, like, the local Washington, D.C. city paper. And there's an ad for um, Falsetto Wanted beach boys tribute band oh cool i'm like oh well i i sing falsetto i like the beach boys i'll put in a call yeah. and then i kind of mentioned it to the the other uh the other guitar player who was in the band his name is steve uh steve mcwilliams really great guy and he's like oh yeah they've uh, they've had that ad going for a couple years now like, really oh okay so i went and i show up and i did uh um they had me audition with a couple songs and i auditioned with uh, don't worry baby mm-hmm. and I did that song. He's like, okay, I got to check with the other guys, but I think you're in. So I was like, okay. Um, if they've been waiting a couple of years for that, yeah, I imagine yeah. that you would be. Yeah. Um, and uh, then they met a couple of the other guys in, a band, in the band, and I you know, sang the song for them. They're like, okay, cool. We, we think you're in. Um, so then I go, and this is, um, at this point, um, so I'm now in a Beach Boys tribute band what had they been doing in the meantime without you had uh, they been performing or yes. just waiting well yeah they were they were a five piece they had a guy uh who was singing falsetto mm-hmm. and he was okay but not great he was more he was a better guitar player right um they brought me in and they're like okay well you you sing falsetto i was like okay well what what guitar parts he was like well don't worry about that right now just <laughs> have the guitar on you yeah but don't turn on your volume knob at first we'll just we want you to sing and we'll teach you the music later okay and so okay uh, i did that so my first gig with them was at a fourth of july festival uh um the fourth fourth of july 2002 so it was the fourth is the first fourth of july following uh the 9-11 attacks right. okay so we go out and we did an acapella version of uh america and like dead silence and then the crowd is all cheers and stuff yeah uh, so it was a that was a, a really big moment uh and then let's go first gig it's like it's in front of like ten thousand people in fairfax wow. for their fourth of july festival Ooh, that's so, special that's yeah. really special um and so yeah so I, it was like my first gig i played for ten thousand people <laughs> and then they had us take the intermission and the fireworks happened during our intermission so then i got to play for ten thousand people walking away Perfect. Which is another 45 minutes of just people walking the other direction. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. All right. Rock and roll. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, you know, we just kind of kept going. I did that for...
few months. Uh, one of the guys, we were a six piece for a while and sounded pretty good. I was getting better at kind of playing the guitar stuff. Yeah. Uh, and then we go and we actually, uh, the other, the other falsetto guy, um, announced he was leaving, um, which was, it was a bummer. His name is Art. Really cool guy. Yeah. Uh, but he was, uh, he, and he's got a band that where he plays, um, Dick Dale style, uh, just surf guitar stuff. Oh, cool. Just still, still yeah. doing that? Uh, the last I heard. Okay. Um, and then, um, so the first show that we play without art, we go up to this place in Delaware and, um, all of a sudden now I have all of the leads, the, mm-hmm. all the non Mike love leads. So if it's not about cars and if it's not about surfing, it's, I'm singing the lead on it. Right. Um, so we play this show and there's a photographer who's kind of taking pictures of the band mm-hmm. and we start talking after the show. Um, and then, uh, her name was Marianne and then we kept talking after the show and then, uh, probably about six months later she moved in. Uh, wow. and yeah. So then after that, um, we kind of had this real total beach boys experience mm-hmm. where we actually, uh, were having creative differences. Okay. Okay. So the band, the band was having creative differences. Okay. Marianne and I were not having creative okay. differences. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Um, the band and I were having creative differences. Uh, the leader of the band was more of the car surf songs, mm-hmm. and I wanted to do more of like kind of the nineteen, the later sixties, okay, um, and some of the seventies stuff. And I think when I, when the word Susie Cincinnati came out of my mouth, yeah. that was sort of like the irrevocable split right there. <laughs> um, so, and then it was like, okay, so I, you know, gave my notice and I played out the rest of the summer. Right. Um, but then, um, you know, by that point, Mary and Anna and I were living together and a couple of years later, we, uh, moved to Orlando. Uh, we got married. So I can truthfully say that without the Beach Boys, yeah. uh, I would not be in this chair talking to you tonight about, uh, about anything. Because right. I wouldn't even be in Orlando. Like my life would have gone in an entirely different direction. That's amazing. Yeah. And without the Beach Boys, I wouldn't have had an episode about the Beach Boys. Also true. Also very true. Which I guess is true with or without you. Yeah, I mean, the episode about the Beach Boys can happen <laughs> without me if there's somebody else in this chair. If the Beach Boys exist. If right. they don't exist, then who am I talking about? Right, right. Of course, if, if somebody else was, I could be doing a podcast with somebody else about the Beach Boys if you weren't here. Right, but that's if I don't exist. I'm talking about if the Beach Boys don't exist. I'm talking about some... Some weird underground band called Beach that nobody's heard of. Oh, right. Like a, okay, yeah, like a 70s. <laughs> but they're so mature. <laughs> 70s, yeah, 70s AOR band. They're unbelievably mature. Um, well, that, that's, that's cool. So um, let's, uh, let's jump into their timeline. Let's jump into their story a little bit. Um, we we kind of talked about the football stuff and everything, but what, what, is, it about, uh, what is it about that time that, that, that creates this particular sound? Because we've mentioned Jan and Dean. You mentioned, who else did you mention? Um, the uh, kind of four freshmen. The four freshmen, right? And okay. And who was the guy that in the cu- in the band that you just talked about? Oh, uh, Dick Dale. Dick Dale. Dick okay. Dale. So this isn't a sound that the Beach Boys necessarily or, no, no, or no create no. or originate. Um, they, they sort of combine everything for the first time okay. in a way that uh, that works. Um, they had each each one of the members kind of had a different background. Mm-hmm. Um, Brian was more of a composer like he actually took composition classes and like for his 14th or 15th birthday he actually received a, a tape recorder like a multi-track tape recorder mm-hmm. uh, and the people in the house like the the dad his name was murray would play uh he would play organ and his mom audra or audrey would would play the piano and they would kind of sing together and they would record things uh his father actually wrote a song that was on 
I think the Lawrence Welk show. Oh, um, it, it's like a two-step sidestep, two-step sidestep, something like that. It was just sort of a, like a poppy dance thing. So he had always kind of imagined himself a composer. Right. Um, so the Wilsons, but they grew up in a kind of a, a musical very musical household. household. Right. Right. Um, and Brian just sort of had that gift from the beginning. They recognized it in him, and they were um, uh, nurturing it as much as they could. Sure. Um, then they had uh, Mike, who was more. He was the kind of the cousin, was more of a, I don't know if he was necessarily more of a religious background, but definitely more of a family background. And he also kind of did the lower stuff. And he was also um, the the most popular uh, in high school with the ladies at that point. Mm. Um, he he got around, much like the song. <laughs> um, so they had those two. And then Carl was like the, kind of this young kid at that point who just, he played guitar, he picked it up, and he was just playing Chuck Berry riffs all day. Sure. Just like... Um, so you had those and then Al was actually kind of a folk guy, like into the Kingsman trio and, um, the, you know, just the kind of folk scene, just acoustic guitars and singing. And then, uh, Brian also loved the four freshmen. Mm -hmm. So those kind of harmony parts. Um, so then they all got together. Then Dennis, who was the, the, probably at that point, the least musical of all of them, they like were kind of told they had to put him in the band. If they were going to do a family thing, they had to put him in. So they, they put him on drums. Okay. Um, and he suggested, oh, let's write a song about surfing. That's what kids are doing. And so they wrote a song called Surfing. Right. Because he, he if, I, if I have this correctly, Dennis was the only one that actually surfed, right? Yes. Or, yeah. At that, yeah, he was the one, like, he was the surfer. He okay. was, like, the, if the kind of the myth of the Beach Boys, that was him. Right. Um, so uh, they wrote a song. He wrote a song called Surfing. They recorded it. They went into a studio, and they recorded it, and they called themselves the Pendletones which was they were originally they were wearing shirts that were Pendleton shirts. Mm-hmm. So they were trying to make like a pun off of the shirt that they were wearing. Sure. The uh, Hilarious. Y- yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, yeah, humor becomes a big thing later on. Um, <laughs> not, not so much, not at, this so point. much at, the, yeah. at the top. But the, uh, the, the guy that was running the studio was like, that Pendleton, that doesn't make any sense. They're singing <laughs> about surfing. Well, call them the Beach Boys. And so he changed the name of the band without telling the band. And he oh. just put it on the record. He sent it out to local radio station. The local radio station just says, and now we've got a new one from local guys, the Beach Boys. They played surfing, and they were like kind of sitting around like a, the story is that they're sort of sitting around like one of the, uh, like a drive-in, like a Tasty Freeze or something where it's like the, almost kind of like a Sonic, but uh, in the 60s, so much like more authentic. Right. Um, they heard their song on the radio. They flip out because it's their song, and then... Like, one of them's like, hey, I thought we were the Pendletones. And the other guys are like, we don't care. <laughs> okay. Beaches, beach boys are fine. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that was kind of the beginning of that. Then they go, they get signed to uh, Capitol Records. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, and they do the Surf and Safari record. At this point, Al uh, actually leaves the band. He goes, he quits because his parents are like, the music is never going to go anywhere. So he actually leaves and goes back to Ohio to study dentistry. Oh, yeah. Very good. So then they get this guy, David Marks, who lived across the street from them that played guitar, guitar with Carl. Mm-hmm. And so they come over. So on those first two records, there's actually a whole bunch of um, surf rock instrumentals that, like, let's, their version of, like, Let's Go Trippin' and I think Walk Don't Run. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, Misery Lou, whatever that. Yeah. The one that was on the Pulp Fiction soundtrack. Right. Like, they have their own version of that song. Oh, wow. Uh, and they've got, you know, Surfing, Surfing Safari, Surfing USA. And then um, 
409, which is an early car song, mm-hmm. and Little Deuce Coop, which is a, another early early car, car song. song. Or yeah. uh, sorry, Shut Down was the name of that song. Sorry, was on that record. Uh, edit that out. Make me sound smarter, or don't. It's your choice. <laughs> no <laughs> um, editing. Okay, that's <clears throat> not surprising. Um, okay, yeah. So as I was saying, Shut Down was uh, on that first record, mm-hmm. or the second record. So they did those uh, because they were like, hey, not everybody's around a beach, but everybody wants a car. Right. Um, so that was kind of their, their thought there. Then they do those two albums. And then... Alice so it sounds like that first song really kind of set the tone as far as like the, the subject matter, you know, and then they kind of, they got on the radio and then they got signed. Was it, was it a case of like, you know, was Brian especially or any of them kind of already itching to be like, you know, we're more than just surf music and were people pressuring them or were they all just on board with it? Like, I guess this is who we are. Um, Brian was at that point, Brian wanted to be a composer. Like that's what he wanted to do. Yeah. And this was just sort of what he ended up doing. Like the songs, like, oh, okay. It's your surf song, but song about surfing. Okay. So blah, he was blah, okay blah, blah, blah. with it. He was okay with it. Uh, but he always wanted to do more. Right. Um, and he wanted to be very hands-on in the entire industry. He wanted to, uh, record he wanted to write he wanted to produce yeah uh, at that time the model was you would have a group together and you would have the record label the record label would have songwriters on staff and they would write songs and then you the band would record the songs they wrote for you right, you didn't right, write right. your own songs you didn't do your own arrangements you didn't produce your own records uh, but brian wilson wanted to do all of that right um and he basically they had a producer for the first two records a guy named uh nick benet nick benet um, that, uh, he was, um, he wanted to, he was producing them, but mm-hmm. he could tell even then, like Brian was itching to do it. So he was sort of kind of letting him do parts of it sort of under the radar of Capitol Records. Sure. By the time they get ready to do their third record is Surfer Girl. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of the earliest songs that he wrote, but he was saving it. So he goes in and he, they allow Brian permission to actually produce it. And that record is almost all, um, Brian Wilson and co-writer compositions. So there's no, you're not, you don't have a bunch of covers on there. Right, right, right. Um, and Brian gets to produce it. And you go from that early, just sort of Chuck Berry with some kind of basic harmonies on there mm-hmm. to Surfer Girl, which is um, a really pretty song. Yeah. It's, if you listen to it, it's, it's actually based on When You Wish Upon a Star. Oh. Yeah. When you wish upon a star. Mm-hmm. So that one from Jimmy Cricket. So. You love me. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I do have to say, Surfer Girl is probably one of my favorite Beach Boys songs. Just, just, just for the harmonies, and mm-hmm. I like the lyrics too. But yeah, there's just something about the sound of it that just. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's it's a great one. It's still popular to this day. Yeah. Everybody loves it. Um, like all all the different various fans loves that love that song. Mm-hmm. But also on that record, he does a song. He does um, Catch a Wave. Yeah. Which is this really pretty, you don't think it's still sort of a surf song, but now you've got all of these, you have a lot more harmonies and kind of overlapping lines. And then on that record, they do a song called In My Room, mm. which... Also, I love that song. Yeah. We'll pause for a moment <laughs> so you can input just a section of that. And we're back. Okay. Uh, <laughs> no editing. Sorry. No editing. Uh, uh, but that was a song that was uh, uncharacteristic of musicians it was uncharacteristic of teenagers mm-hmm. and it was certainly uncharacteristic of you know a 22 year old guy 21 22 year old guy from california who was trying to be like project this image of uh being awesome like surfing and, and cars and, and everything right um because it was from a real personal place but 
when they started and they were like, well, not everybody's by the beach, but everybody wants cars. The other thing that they thought, or they didn't catch on uh, on purpose, but they did with that song is that everybody gets sad. Right. Everybody feels down. Right. And this was a song that let people feel down and validated other people's feelings and said, hey, it's okay to feel down. But it also made feeling down beautiful. Yeah. Uh, and that becomes a huge recurring thing um, through you know, pop music from that point forward. Mm-hmm. Um, but also specifically with the Beach Boys. And also ends up being a giant, uh, kind of one of the, the wedges that causes problems later on. Sure. Um, so they do that song, and then, you know, once again, they're, they're super huge. And about this time, um, the Beatles show up. Okay. Um, and like there's the people that are like, oh, you know, the the Beach Boys are kind of the the America's answer to the Beatles. I was like, sort of, but not really. The right. Beach Boys were around in the U.S. before the Beatles got here. Right. So, um, but at that point, uh, Brian Wilson, who ha- didn't have a whole lot of competition to be like the best pop writer, best pop best pop arranger uh, producer, yeah, all of a sudden felt like a real drive. Um, to be better. Um, before that, like kind of the, the biggest uh, competition that they had really would have been Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it was sort of like this uh, uh, Biggie Tupac East Coast West Coast thing. <laughs> right. Um, and there's actually um, an early version of a diss track in which um, the chorus on just the out, outro of one of the Beach Boy songs, mm-hmm. uh, they just sing they just sing Four Seasons. You better believe it. Like they were challenging the Four Seasons. Is that right? Tra- yeah. So they were they were very much aware of sort of the competition mm-hmm. aspect of it. Yeah, and they were. I mean, and he was driven. Like he was, he was working really hard. They were producing at that point three to four albums a year. Yeah. Um, which is even even in the '60s, that was a good bit. Most groups would do two. Was that something that Brian Wilson like? Would he have like Frankie Valley sort of in the back of his mind? I mean, was he? Was yeah. he actively aware of the Four Seasons and like their their ability to harmonize and their their output and stuff yeah. like that? Wow. Yeah, and they even uh, they cover. I think uh, is it Why Do Fools Fall in Love? Or is that one of theirs? Or is that a Phil Spector song? But it's it's a couple of them. Like they they are very aware of each other at yeah. this point, uh, and they're very aware of like, oh, okay, well that's you guys can do that. Well, we're gonna do this. Wow. Um, and so that be kind of becomes this sort of competition between the two of them. Yeah. Uh, but then the Beatles show up and they're like, ah, Frankie Valley, screw that. <laughs> yeah. We're taking on these guys. Sure. And so, you know, you've got the height of Beatlemania and they've got, they've got the Beatles have um, like five, the t- all five of the top five songs. Right. And Brian Wilson gets his uh, first number one with the Beach Boys uh, in the middle of Beatlemania, which is a song called I Get Around. Oh, yeah. So... Um, which once again, it's got like, it's got kind of weird starts and stops. Um, but it's another strange song in that you think it's about like, yeah, I'm the coolest kid in high school. I got my car and I got my girl and everything's right. And all the girls love me, but it's really a song that he's actually singing about. Uh, I don't need this anymore. And this is boring to me. Okay. Yeah. I'm trying, I'm Uh, trying to run the lyrics through my head really quick. I'm getting bugged driving up and down the same old strip. Right. So it's just, it's the, it's just the the repetitiveness of the lifestyle. Yeah. It's like, I'm getting, I'm getting bugged doing this all the time. Right. Um, it's like, he's, he's over it. He's tired of it. Yeah. And he turns that into the sort of, 
um, kind of backhanded backhanded commentary on what they've already been doing. Like he's tired of surf songs. He's tired of car songs. Oh, cool. So it's um, kind of a statement. Yeah. Wow. And then um, on the B side of that single is Don't Worry Baby, mm-hmm. which uh, is a wonderfully beautiful song. Um, yeah, the harmonies are great. The The lyric is really cool. But once again, it's an, it's another one where it's a guy who's kind of got himself in this position. He doesn't want to be in it anymore. Right. Um, and the original lyrics to that song, um, I don't know what the original lyrics are uh, because I've not heard the original lyrics. Mm-hmm. But the original inspiration for the song, when the song was originally written, it was about a soldier in Vietnam. Oh. Like that was sort of the thing that was getting it was like that was sort of the idea that came to him was like don't worry baby so like it's, a, then, it's almost like a letter home or something I, i'm not sure because i haven't read it but it seems like that would be what it what it would be about right uh, telling it telling him not to worry but then they it was like eh, we can't really do that so they sort of change it into the song that it became right um well that's heavy yeah <laughs> so um yeah so that's that's 1964 i think that's when that is uh and then they move into um 1965 mm-hmm where, uh, like, at the end of 64, Brian has a, has a nervous breakdown, and he's, like, uh, on a plane to Houston. He's like, I'm, forget it, I'm out. I'm not torn anymore. I'm not torn anymore. Uh, the rest of the band uh, panics, except for Carl, who, at that point, was still the youngest, but had effectively become sort of the band leader on stage. So you had Brian was the leader in the studio, right? and Carl was the leader on stage. Carl's, Carl was picking the songs. Carl was doing the live arrangements. Mm. Um, and he's like, well, we're going to keep going. <laughs> right. So they make a call and they get one of their studio guys, um, Glenn Campbell. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Yes, I have. Yeah, he becomes a Beach Boy for about six weeks. Oh, cool. Um, and then he uh, famously says, "Well, this is just too hard," and he leaves. So they <laughs> really? get yeah. Um, so, but he was singing the falsetto parts and playing bass for them for a couple months um, while they were trying to figure out what to do next. And yeah. Brian was like, I'm not going on the road anymore. I'm just going to stay in the studio. I'm just going to do that. And they're like, okay, well, we're going to keep going. Yeah. Um, so then they get a guy named Bruce Johnson, or Bruce Johnson, Bruce Johnson. Uh, and he was also a singer. He was in a group that did um, a couple couple car songs and everything that were all just sort of based about based around the Beach Boys sound. Mm-hmm. So like, okay, well, he can do it. So they brought him in to play bass and sing falsetto. And he has been with the band uh Almost ever since. He takes a break for a few years in the 70s. Okay. Um, he uh, writes a song right before he goes. He does a lot on the um, the Surf's Up album, I think. Um, he writes a song called Disney Girls, which mm-hmm. is a it's a <laughs> fan favorite for people that are like kind of heavy Beach Boy fans. Right. Like, oh, play that song. Play, play Disney Girls. Uh, it's either Surf's Up or Sunflower, I think. Um, but See, it's funny about that song because I heard it for the first time probably a month and a half ago or two months ago i was listening to the satellite radio and somehow that came on and i listened to the entire thing and uh i spoke to adam sharf the next day who did the the weezer episode good friend of ours yeah Yeah. um also really into the beach boys and i just said i go what the hell is up with this beach Boys song and he was like which one and i said oh it was ridiculous it was disney girls and immediately he goes oh that's a great song yeah, and I was like, "What? What am I missing here? Like, what am I? What am I missing from it?" It, it's a song that actually enca- ends up encapsulating a lot of what the Beach Boys would become, uh-huh. which is this sort of uh, fancy, uh, whimsical nostalgia for a time that, even though they were there and they were a part of, right. still really didn't exist. Sure. 
Um, they want it, they want to make America great again. <laughs> Oops, I killed him. Yeah, I killed him. Uh, Do we have that song? Can we can we listen to? Uh, it yeah, I've got it. I've got it. Uh, let me see here. Let me. Uh, da, da, da. I'll have it. In my my Beatles set or my Beatles. I've got my Beach Boys seventies mix. So they have my Beach Boys broken up into early sixties, late sixties, Pet Sounds and Smile seventies, right, eighties and nineties. Wow. And then. Uh, I think I have another one of just bizarre um, kind of remixes and stuff. Um, yeah, I'm gonna just fire it up. I don't yeah. know if you need to check a level or anything. Check the level. That was. I want to redo that. They, I know there were no edits here, but just make sure you get it right. There you go. Disney girls. It actually sounds very much like an Eagles song. And I know it predates that, but it like it, it does really remind me of that like Southern California, Southern California sound, yeah. sound of the 1970s. Um, well, this was actually right right after this. Um, right after this, I just, sorry, I love that little harmony break there. Yeah. Um, right after this, Bruce Johnston leaves the Beach Boys, mm-hmm. and he goes off and he wins a Grammy for uh, Barry Manilow's "I Write the Songs." Oh, okay. Which is. Uh, like the song Brian Wilson, about Brian Wilson. Is it really? Yeah. No. Yeah. I write the songs, write the songs. Is about Brian Wilson. The whole world sing. Really? Yeah. I just thought it was Barry Manilow just being full of himself. No, no. Wow. Yeah. I'm gonna have to re-listen to that as well. Because I can guarantee you, almost anybody can sing a Beach Boys song, even if they don't like them, they will know them. Or if it starts playing, they'll they'll know it. And one of the the key to that, uh, which is this kind of bizarre thing that. I kind of it came to me is that even especially those early songs, yeah, they're all they're almost like little children. They're almost like children's songs. Sure, they're one, four, five progressions, and it's a short lyric and a catchy chorus and a really basic um, at the beginning, like kind of really basic verse, chorus, verse, chorus, uh, guitar solo, middle like middle break, uh, chorus and out. Right, um, but. Brian Wilson wrote so many songs and he wrote so many good ones and so many classics that just sort of became part of the American consciousness yeah. that to be to say that I write the songs that make the whole, whole world sing is an entirely accurate statement. Yeah. Well, I can guarantee. I mean, it took us to Disney Girls to actually start playing a song because I guarantee you that every other song that you've mentioned so far, whoever's listening to this was already singing it in their head as soon as you mentioned it. Well, except Susie Cincinnati. Except for Susie Cincinnati. Which, understandably, it, rare. It'll, it'll put you to sleep. I don't want I don't want anybody driving listening to this and falling asleep. Only if you're three years old and only if it's uh, real to real. Yeah. But, yeah. but before we before we move on um, past like that surf and car music, I do, I do want to ask sort of, you know, I did mention Jan and Dean and stuff. How aware were like the Beach Boys of Jan and Dean? Because I know in my experience, a lot of people 
uneducated people, will confuse the two. And they'll hear like Little Old Lady from Pasadena or they'll hear like Dead Man's Curve. And because it's that same sort of sound, you go, oh, Beach Boys. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, Jane and Dean actually started uh, as a kind of a folk duo. Mm-hmm. Uh, their early songs were not like Little Old Lady from Pasadena. Um, and then they heard the Beach Boys and they're like, oh, this is good. And they started and they had a song called Sidewalk Surfing, which is about um, skateboarding. Skateboarding. Right. Right. Um, and then they had a number one hit called Surf City. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, which was written by and produced by Brian Wilson. Holy crap. Yeah. So he basically... He wrote it and produced it and sang the high falsetto part on it. So he gave them basically Im- implicit permission to lift the sound. Yeah, he, he, wrote, the, he wrote their number one hit. Wow. Um, and it was actually, well, the, uh, I Get Around, I believe, was the first number one hit for the Beach Boys. Surf City was his first number one hit, and it went to a competing record company. Oh, wow. Which made Capitol very upset. I'm sure. And, yeah. Uh, then they were like, well, just don't do that again. <laughs> or if you do that again, make sure you give it to us and right. not them. Wow. Yeah. So they were absolutely aware of each other. Yes. Um, actually, in the Beach Boys concert, which was, I think, their first number one full-length album, not single, but their first number one album, mm-hmm. uh, they cover Little Old Lady from Pasadena oh, okay. on that song. Cool. So, And very they nice. actually, I think they um, move it up one step like they they modulate or they they raise it one step like they go from a to a sharp or whatever right whatever it's in just to show off uh yeah basically yeah (laughs) um very cool um okay so 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 now we're kind of moving into this we're moving past the surf music now we're kind of getting into a like another phase of the band yes so you have you get brian wilson goes off the road Mm -hmm. so he starts dedicating his time to working in the studio and he's working with a group of musicians at this point that are referred to as the wrecking crew and there's actually there's a documentary about them yeah uh carol Kay, hal blaine a whole bunch of other guys um just the best studio musicians and what happens is brian hears a song uh, a few a couple years earlier called be my baby by phil specter it's actually um Phil Spector like wrote it and produced it, and Brian was like, "That's amazing. That's what I want to be." So he decides that he's going to do what Phil Spector does, mm-hmm. um, and he gets the very best musicians that worked for Phil Spector, and he starts using them to put together his musical vision. And the first album that he does after that, after he comes off the road, is an album called Today, and it's uh, still very. Um, let me show you the cover here. Uh, the cover of it is still very. Um, very kind of sixties ish. Um, it's, you know, the, the four guys. Nope. Don't, don't start playing. Don't it's, you know, it's, it's them and they're just, they're wearing their sweaters. Right. Um, you know, they're kind of looking over their shoulder and it's just, um, it looks like they're, I think it looks like they're on, Oh, they're on a diving board. I get, okay. You can see that that's a, I've never really looked that closely at it. That's oh yeah yeah the, yeah kind of the, the, the ladder to get out of a pool. Yeah. So I'm guessing they're sitting on a diving it's board. It's very wholesome. Yeah, it's a very wholesome image. Um, and the tracks on this record are um, "Help Me Rhonda," the first version. So they actually do the song "Help Me Rhonda," and then um, they decide they don't like it enough, and they do another version later on. Mm-hmm. Um, "Dance, dance, dance." Do you want to dance? Don't hurt my little sister. Good to my baby. Um, and then they do a song called When I Grow Up, mm-hmm. uh, which is When I Grow Up to Be a Man. And it just kind of goes through this list of things. You know, is this going to happen to me when I get older? Is this going to happen to me when I get older? Is this going to happen to me? You know, am I, will I still um, still dig the same things that turned me on as a kid? Right. Um, you know, am I going to get an, am I going to become an old crotchety man or am I still going to love life the way that I love it now? Yeah. 
which is another one of those, especially in like 1965. Um, like that's a completely out there thought. Right. Um, especially and, for something that, that expects like radio play. Yeah. Like that, that's a, that's a weird topic for a single. Yeah. And it's, <laughs> and it uses, uh, there's uses a harpsichord in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. Like there's a harpsichord, I think it's a harpsichord solo. It's like, um, and that's just the first side. And the second side has, um, excuse me, please let me wonder. Kiss Me Baby, um, these songs where all of a sudden you go from guitar, bass, drums with a little bit of extra arrangements and these, like the vocal parts, which are still very intricate and very good, to these are short orchestral pop pieces mm-hmm. um, with um, just the uh, Kiss Me Baby. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play a little bit of Kiss Me Baby here because yeah. there's... There's, there's no way I'm going to be able to describe it and do it justice at the same time <laughs> um, because it's just so incredibly pretty. this part where just everything comes together oh yeah but you know, you've got you've got a horn section you've got multiple vocal lines and once again it's a really beautiful song about horrible sadness right like you don't even they don't even remember what they were fighting about but it's 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 over yeah but he doesn't want it to be uh, because nobody ever wants it to be over in a pop song. Sure. Uh, <laughs> right. Well, until you get to Gloria Gaynor and I will survive. Which, right. Uh, I wish, oh, if they had only done a cover of that song. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been very layered and melancholy. Yeah. Wow. Um, so, I mean, so the sound's getting way more sophisticated. There's a lot of stuff happening yeah. in their songs now with harmonies and all sorts of yeah. things. But at the same time, they're also kind of keeping their, their sense of humor. Yeah. Um, I, on the first record, I'm not going to play it because they're they're not particularly good. Um, and I want to keep the illusion going, but they did, they had songs called, like one that's like called Cuckoo, where it's just, they're making the so- sounds of a cuckoo clock. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I'm watching the clock on the wall, cuckoo, cuckoo. It's, they're not, they're not great songs, but they're these sort of weird kind of funny bits. Right. And then at the end of this song, there's a track that's just called, um, it's called Bull Session with Big Daddy, which is this. It's just a bizarre track where it seems like they're just talking in the studio. There's no music. There's mm. no. There's no like lyrics. There's no melody. It's just they're just talking. They're in the studio and somebody brings in some hamburgers and they just start eating them. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um. It's it's not on any of my uh my playlists because I always cut that one off because you can you can only hear that so many times before you're like oh okay well, they don't they I, I don't, get it they don't like mustard <laughs> they don't like mustard I got it um but it just sort of and it seems like it's this kind of album filler thing you're mm-hmm. like you don't know why it's there it's like oh they they needed two more minutes of sound to right. finish an album 
Um, and that may be part of it, but also uh, it kind of keeps this uh, humor thing going. Um, so they do that, and that record just blows people away. Um, but it doesn't have a super huge hit on it. So then they go and they do, they go back, and then they do the next album um, in 1965, which is called um, Summer Days and Summer Nights. Mm-hmm. So the first one, so today was like, that's what we're doing today. Because um, they wanted to sort of update like what they were doing. Yeah. Summer Days and Summer Nights goes back to more of the like what was expected of them. Mm-hmm. Um, there's and that's where you get um, California Girls, which is super huge. But at the same time, it's still a surf and it's still a surf song. It's still a song about girls. Um, but you've got this orchestral arrangement at the very beginning. And it's about this point where all of the all of the bio things are all like when Brian started smoking marijuana at this point, <laughs> which yeah. is, which is fine. And you can t- I mean it's great, but there's this section of songs like in a row on that record that's um, "Girl Don't Tell Me," the single version of "Help Me Rhonda," which is the one that you know from the radio, mm-hmm. "California Girls," which people know, "Let Him Run Wild," which is another song that's like um, this guy's gonna hurt you, let him go. I'll be here. Okay. Um, which is sort of the reverse of Help Me Rhonda, which is, she left me and I'm miserable. <laughs> right. Um, and then a song called You're So Good to Me, which is the first time I ever listened to a song and I just said, what the hell? Because there's just like this one riff that just repeats over and over again for about two and a half minutes. Uh-huh. And it, it's a lot of people are like, oh, California girls, that, that, that opening is so beautiful. It must be the first time that he, he smoked pot. And I said, no, from being a musician who has occasionally uh, played on the guitar on uh, substances. Right. Uh, you're so good to me is what musicians do when they're high. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, I'll just do a couple moments of it because a couple moments is all you're going to need. <laughs> so this is, you're so good to me. And there's definite. Okay. I'll go, I'll go back. Sorry. I didn't have the volume on. That repetitiveness is what tells you that. Yeah, and there's also there's an organ in the background that's just. And but then still because of the Beach Boys and it's Brian Wilson. Right. So there's that, but it's like from a musician standpoint, there's that guitar line and the the verse and the chorus. It's the same thing. Yeah. It's just that. And it just goes and goes and goes. And when you're listening for that Phil Spector kind of wall of sound thing, like you really do start to hear that influence, you know, and that the, the, the producing side of it where you're just like, oh, he was he was filling every song. Yeah. With just beautiful sounds. Yeah. And there's, yeah, like that, that organ, that organ in the background. And then there's another organ. And there's um, the, the, even underneath the, underneath the main line and above everything else is still like the little vocal parts that you can't hear unless you're really listening for them right um so at what point do um at what point do the beach boys sort of become aware of the beatles or or at least uh immediately immediately as soon as the beatles as soon as the beatles landed and they played sullivan uh their father who was a manager for them at one point before he was fired and there's a whole ton of stuff about murray wilson uh to do the, the quick summary, um, he apparently loved his sons. 
but he treated them in a way that uh, would be considered abuseful now. Oh. Uh, it was abuse then. Um, uh, he would hit them and berate them, and he managed them for a while until they had to be. He had to be fired mid session because he would not stop, um, like, running ragged. And, and he was just uh, the story. And it's he's gone back and forth over it a couple of times, but. The story that has been accepted for a long time is that at one point he hits Brian so hard that Brian loses the hearing in one of his ears. So oh, Brian Wilson is, is like mostly like 80% deaf in one of his ears. Right. Um, that he has very, at various times, like, oh, my dad hit me. And some other times he's like, oh, you know, it just happened. <laughs> um, sort of thing. So he kind of goes back and forth on right. that. But um, so I don't really talk about, I haven't really talked about him because that's a whole other section sure. of, of like kind of... Uh, really kind of nasty family business yeah uh, and it's out there if anybody wants to to go over it He's it's in every movie right it's every one of the films he has a much bigger part than Al in every single one of the movies of course it's more drama if anything if anything comes out of this podcast I want people to go and look up Al Jardine and his his contributions yeah because he gets he just gets shafted attention must be paid <laughs> And there it is, folks, part one in the books of this two-part Beach Boy story. We'll leave it right there at the perfect spot, right in the middle of Brian Wilson's breakdown. You know this next part, ladies and gentlemen. What Am I Missing is edited, produced, and hosted by me, Brett Walden, with original music by Anthony Smith. Special thanks to Matt Midget, if for nothing else, not pointing out that my Brian Wilson impression is terrible and sounds too much like Tony Clifton. If you'd like to know more about me or listen to past episodes, you can find it all at facebook.com slash whatamimissingpod. And if you have any questions, comments, or curses about anything you heard today, you can email me at whatamimissingpodcast at gmail.com. Please make sure to rate us on whatever app you choose to listen to podcasts on and tell your friends about us. Pretty please. Now, here is a preview of part two of next week's episode. Is there a, is a specific moment that encapsulates everything? I would say there maybe would be specific moments that encapsulate everything for an individual member of the band. Okay. Um, Mike Love can be best encapsulated by Do It Again. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a song about a guy who's, you know, he used to be used to be something, and now he's not, and he just wants to get it back. Wow. And that becomes his entire through line. That's, that's him. Thanks for listening. <laughs>